This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here! We're watching here! This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he's the Noah Cross to my Hollis Mainway, Perry Cyber. How you doing, Perry? I'm okay. I'm I'm I I I have some backstory. Turns out I had no idea, but I'm doing good, Chris. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Um let's let's take the this episode right now, right off the top, to talk to our listeners and say last time we recorded our Godfather trilogy, I said, Hey, it's been a crazy time, but we're back on track and we're getting some episodes out to you. <laughs> Um, and we have not gotten an episode out to you in over a month, um, maybe almost two. Uh, that That's my bad. Life got crazy. We are kind of figuring out what normal looks like. Uh, and so that's that's made my job crazy. It's made my life crazy. It meant by the end of the day, I had the energy to maybe watch an episode of Girls 5 Eva before uh, I just collapsed into bed. So there was, there was very few movies. There was very few podcasting, um, but we are back and I can say this with confidence. We have a recording schedule that we have started to map out and you're going to start getting some episodes. Uh, we are going to dive right back into our summer of the seventies ep- uh, series here. And we're going to be talking about Chinatown today. And I'm very excited about that, but Perry, it's been about two months. What have you been watching? So much, but I want to talk about uh, somebody we've talked about just far too much in the history of this podcast because he made another really good movie. Let's talk about No Sudden Moves, shall we? Steven Soderbergh's latest, which is on HBO. It's such a joy. Uh, Absolute fantastic crime comedy drama. It's It's not a thriller. It's not quite a... It's a drama, I guess. Um, but it's got some good laughs in it and a spectacular cast, all doing fantastic work. Especially, it's a pleasure to see Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro both back with Steven Soderbergh uh, as sort of the co-leads of this whole endeavor. Uh, boy, the less said, the better. It's just, it's it's a blast to watch. Uh, uh, a really strong screenplay by the director, by the man who wrote the Men in Black films. <laughs> And and uh, a, a, a beautiful a beautiful evocation of period era Detroit, where it was actually shot here last fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying much about it because it really is. The less you know going in, the better off you, the more fun you're going to have. Uh, and boy, boy, it it really is fun with a fantastic surprise cameo late in the movie. I this this one frustrates me because it has been sitting in my HBO Max queue since it debuted. Um, I've been really curious about this because I love Out of Sight, which was the last one he made in Detroit. And mm-hmm. No Sudden Move was actually filmed three blocks from my office. Uh, I work at a university downtown, and one of our buildings was actually used for a lot of the uh, office scenes they have in that. And my, nice. boss, my boss actually was the one kind of brokering a lot of that with uh, Steven Soderbergh and his people. So Excellent. I, 
I've been hearing about this. I was begging, you know, is there a way I can get on that set? Is there, but obviously the <laughs> pandemic like took all that away, but they were talking about that even before everything shut down. Um, I have wanted to see this and it has just not happened yet. And I'm really frustrated and hoping that soon I can take an advantage of a few days off and, and actually sit down and push play because it looks really good. I've heard good things and I love seeing Detroit on the big screen. Like it doesn't happen a lot and it's usually standing in for another city. And I just love looking at Detroit on, on the big screen. It's a pleasure. It, it has that, it reminded me of how, uh, how the Coen brothers used New Orleans to stand in for generic 1920s, 30s American city. Like they never, they never name it as New Orleans, but that's where they shot it. And mm-hmm. once you know that, you can kind of see it and get the feeling of it. But it's not so specific. And this is this is set in the fifties, I believe, late fifties, early yeah, late fifties. And uh, it's great. It doesn't. I mean, I you. It's it, Detroit looks great in it, <laughs> and it's great to know that it was actually shot there. I mean, I, it's not so much so that I wouldn't know. You know, if if you if they you told me they'd shot it somewhere else and just called it Detroit, mm-hmm. I'd be I, I wouldn't know any better. <laughs> but uh, knowing it even is, it's 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 all the more spectacular. Uh, it it looks good even in the outrageous wide angle lenses Soderbergh employs throughout much of the film. <laughs> I yeah, I can't wait for this. I, I'm really he's having like the best retirement ever. Like I hope I can retire like he does where. It just seems like retirement just means I'm doing better work than I've done in a long time. And having so he talked fun. about he talked about his retirement recently on uh, Mark Maron's podcast. He was on WTF to plug this movie and talked. Oh, I mean, because Maron will ask anything, and Maron just openly asked about the retirement. And he talked about what he was going to do and his plans, and it how how he said it lasted about two months, and I was bored, stupid, mm-hmm. and then I got the script for the Nick. And I was back at work. <laughs> yeah. And he's put out, has he put out almost as many movies post-retirement as he did pre-retirement? No, no, okay. nowhere close. Because he the worked man so was fast. remarkably prolific though, yeah. even before that. So that true. no, he's not that close, but okay. it's, 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 it's good. I like the fact he said in this interview, he, he makes the distinction uh, between movies and films. And Marin asks him, what's the last film you made? And he really thinks about it. And then he says, Che. <laughs> And it's telling that in other interviews, he's talked about how it was while shooting Che that he completely lost the plot of his own career and what he wanted to do. Oh, wow. (laughs) I'll have to listen to that, too. Well, that is No Sudden Move. That is on HBO Max. Um, Have you, I'm just curious, have you been back to the theater yet? Uh, uh, I have, but only for press screenings. Okay, okay. I haven't even done that. I stopped doing that. Um, I've, I've been paying like a schmuck, but, uh, I have gone, I've gone a few times to see a few things with my kids. Um, but that's not what I'm going to talk about today. Um, I'm going to talk about something we don't talk about a lot, which is, um, a stand-up comedy special that I saw about two months ago and have not been able to stop thinking about. It's, it's kind of haunted me. Um, and that is Bo Burnham's Inside. Have you seen that? I have not watched it yet. I have heard many okay. things about it. Okay, this is on Netflix. Um, This was something that I did have a rare Friday night where I got home. I I feel like it was like 10 o'clock and I put it on. And I really just wanted something that was light, that was going to make me laugh and not have to think. Ah! And um, I was not, like, I'll just start this off by saying I was not familiar with Bo Burnham's comedy. 
I'd probably seen a few things on YouTube here and there, but I really knew him from eighth grade. Uh, we talked about him. He was in Promising Young Woman. So I was just expecting, you know, kind of a lighthearted, you know, thing talking about the pandemic. This is something he filmed in his house over the space of a year. I had no idea this was his first stand-up special in five years because he had had panic attacks on the stage. Yeah, uh, I knew none of that. And this is, it's a very funny special at times. Uh, it's very much, you know, riffing on internet comedy and different veins of that. And it's very funny when he does that. But it's also something that I think it captures the um, kind of this low-key anxiety that has just always been there for the last 16 months. This anxiety and depression that you can just kind of feel always there. And it, it starts kind of as a joke, but by the end of it, 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 it takes on a weight and it sent me kind of spiraling for a whole weekend. Like, because it's like the the last 16 months have been hard on everyone. And I think we've all, you know, had our moments of anxiety and depression and this just kind of, Oh yeah, this has been really tough. And it's almost claustrophobic because you are in the same room with him throughout this entire thing. And you feel that claustrophobia, you feel that frustration of having to put together comedy without any audience mm-hmm. um it, it's really remarkable it, it's sometimes very funny but it's more the experience is just just really intriguing like it, it sticks with you and um I, I i've been listening to the songs because some of the songs are really funny and really really clever um but it, it's one of the one of the artifacts that i do think coming out of everything it it, it captures that kind of am I going crazy feeling that we've all had for the last year and I really recommend this it was just nominated for a ton of Emmys um all for Bo Burnham because he did it all on his own and uh it's on Netflix right now I think it's actually coming out into theaters for one night only next week um and as we record this I think like July 30th or 31st it's gonna be in theaters for one night and uh it's it's really something it's it's that rare comedy special that kind of shakes you up a little bit and doesn't really feel like a comedy special by the end of it. If you remember during the run for eighth grade, he talked openly about how that film came about because he found out he had so many female fans who were that age who wrote to him about how his expressions of his anxiety were so helpful and they connected so strongly with them. And so he's learned that that's a very rich vein for him. <laughs> and I, I'm, I have no doubt that he learned stuff from eighth grade that gets put to use in this special. I'm, I, I, I need to watch it. It's, it's really good. It's some of it's really funny. Like I said, some of it gets a bit darker. Some of it's all that at the same time. And uh, I must have, like, I, I feel like I came to eighth grade. Yeah. I wasn't doing uh, Detroit film critics at that that year or anything and so I think I saw eighth grade well after the year when it uh, like well after the time when it was winning all the critics awards and stuff and I kind of was like I guess I'll get around to this loved it's it great. but I, I missed great. all the talks surrounding it um, but yes I, I will also say if you have not seen eighth grade see eighth grade it's uh, it's really good yeah. it's really great yeah <laughs> uh, so we're going to transition from talking about uh really great new movies to really great old movies. Um, well done. We, 
last last time we talked, we just started a series called The Summer of the 70s, where we're going to talk about uh, really some great movies from the 1970s, um, all of which you've seen. Some of them are, are first times for me, but I've seen so far, I've seen Chinatown. I've seen, I had seen one of the Godfathers. Um, this week, we're talking the Chinatown. We're talking Chinatown. And um, this actually kind of had its seeds in you talking about the book, The Big Goodbye, a few months ago. Yeah, Sam Lawson's just spectacular, spectacular book about the making of Chinatown that really is secretly a look at the history of L.A. from about 1960. Actually, it reaches back into the 50s, but basically from about 1968 to about 1978. Uh, It's great. I cannot recommend the book highly enough. Lawson's written just a series of spectacular nonfiction books about uh, different people and different eras in in entertainment history, and this is an absolute jewel. I, I I talked about it at the time how like the chapter where he writes about Robert Town developing the script, and Robert Town wrote, worked on this script for nearly a decade mm-hmm. in some form. He was really, really, really intricately lost in this story for much of the late sixties and throughout the mid early and mid seventies. That the chapter takes on the cadence and tone of of uh, Raymond Chandler and it's spectacular how Watson does it it's not intrusive and it's not showy it's just right you just you feel Robert Towns obsession with getting this on the page mm-hmm. uh, and that's so hard to do in a nonfiction book I, I uh, yeah the book is the book's incredible as is the movie <laughs> yeah. so you know whichever one you get to first fine I would say watch the movie first but yes whichever one you get to get to one or both of them as soon as you can yeah, I, I had the nice pleasure of, I saw Chinatown, last time I saw it was probably 10 years ago, like it had been a while. So I read the book after I had your recommendation, uh, and I read it while I was on vacation back in May and, and loved it. And um, so then that really made me think, okay, well, we're going to be talking about Chinatown, I need to see it again. Well, when I finally sat down and watched Chinatown, it was like watching it for the first time, which was really yeah. great. Um but then the book just informs all that as well. Uh, like when, yeah. when you, it, it just really made it a much richer experience. Um, also, I will say, if, if you have not seen Chinatown before we start talking about it, we probably will spoil it. Uh, it's about 50 years old almost at this point. Um, so you really don't have an excuse to uh, have avoided spoilers. Um, but also you can <laughs> see it. It is one of the rare films made before 1980 that is available on netflix right now and you can watch it on netflix (laughs) and i don't think it probably looks as good as a as a nice blu-ray but it is on there for you um yeah so it looks pretty good in whatever format you see it in (laughs) let's be really clear it looks really good in any format don't don't worry about it well perry uh if you want to take this and just talk a little bit about what Chinatown is about uh, for people who may not have seen it in a few years. Chinatown is about Jake Giddes, a private eye played by Jack Nicholson, who uh, lives in Los Angeles. And I think it's the, is it the late thirties? It is ni- underway? 1937. The okay. Same year that Jack Nicholson was born. And incidentally, Fantastic. the same year my house was made. Oh, outstanding. Yeah. You feel very connected to this world. Yes, yes. <laughs> he is a private eye who works mostly as a snoop, taking pictures of cheating significant others, uh, who 
when a, uh, a woman comes into his office, hires him to snoop on her husband, uh, uh, he turns out to be a big wig in the water department in the universe, the water department in the city of Los Angeles. And then, uh, tensions ensue and complications occur. I just want to leave it at that. I don't want to dig deeper. Uh, not only cause I, the pleasure of watching how well, uh, Robert Town and Roman Polanski dish out the morsels of information you need throughout the course of the film is an utter pleasure. And honestly, Chris, for all the times I've watched this film and it's gotta be at least a dozen over the course of my life, I don't think I could succinctly explain the whole plot <laughs> unless I'm sitting and actually watching it in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, no, the same. Um, yeah, but uh, the, the thing I wanted to start off talking to you about, because I know you have opinions on this, um, is this a noir? Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, totally. Because I, I would almost call it the... So if you want to get really strict, and I, I, I do like to with noir, because I think that's a very... I, I took a whole class in college. Uh, it, was a, it was noir as genre, and I will argue till the end of time that noir is not a genre. It's a style. Mm-hmm. And those are two very different things. Noir is a style that is, uh, that is dependent on a lot of things. Uh, it's dependent on a certain uh, a fear of the past, uh, a, a sense of mortality. Uh, ideally, it's, uh, ideally, it's dealing in very dark material. <laughs> it kind of has to. It's film noir. Uh, uh, and uh, some other things that if you want to get into some deep reading on this topic, there's lots of good writing about the history of noir. Uh, Paul Schrader's notes on film noir is one of the greatest articles I've ever read on the subject. And noir sort of, uh, noir, noir sort of, it, you gotta remember the, 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 okay, history lesson. Edit some of this out so I don't sound so. Oh, I'm not. I'm great. <laughs> so noir comes about because during World War II, when France was under German occupation, Hollywood films weren't brought in. They didn't exist. They couldn't, the Germans weren't allowing the Hollywood propaganda to show up in Vichy, France. And so after the war is over, Hollywood is sitting on this five-year supply of films that the French have never seen. And so they dump it. It all goes overseas so that they can get as, squeeze as much money out of these films as they can. This is free found money for the studios. And what happens is the young French uh, critics at the time, who all basically become the great directors of the French, the, the French New Wave, see these films and they realize that there is a, a darkening of the American film, both in the content and what is being talked about and in physically the look of the films. The films got darker and grimier as a response to what was going on in the country. And so... They dubbed it film noir. That's why it has a French name. It's the French film critics that gave it this. And by that point, uh, that happened so late. That happened by the mid-50s that by that point, noir never got a chance to sort of know what it was. No director said, I'm making a film noir. They, they were going along with what was fashionable at the time. There was this strain and they realized and they were doing it, but it didn't have a name. And so the, the cycle as itself comes to an end pretty much with uh, oh. Aldrich's Kiss Me Deadly and Wells's <laughs> Touch of Evil. Uh, this is from the Schrader article, straight up, is about the end, the two totem ends of noir. And then the 70s happened. <laughs> 
which which is we've talked about numerous times it ends the production code so now films really can talk about anything they want and so there were a bunch of the really savvy you know film brat generation the greatest generation of filmmakers ever out of america anyway uh, not that roman polanski was american but he's certainly of their age and and one of them uh as, as a contemporary uh there started being a response to that critical interpretation of those films and you see the concept of the neo-noir gets born of films that were consciously playing with these images and with our memories of these things and for me chinatown isn't that it is a classic noir just presented in the Watergate era, <laughs> just with the full weight of the scandals of 70s America uh, baked into it. That's why it feels new. It's not. Mm. It's not, it's consciously old fashioned in the best possible ways. Um, and we, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk more about this. And it's fun to talk about this in the context of No Sudden Moves, which is so very much in noir. <laughs> in its own way as well but that's so that's that's why this to me is absolutely a noir it is it is all about not being able to outrun the past it is all about being in a state where you don't really understand what's going on which is key to so much noir uh that there is just awfulness near you at all the time and you don't know when it's going to strike there is paranoia in noir all the time in the best noirs uh and yes oh through and through this is this is if 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 only it had been made 30 years earlier it would be a textbook noir (laughs) yeah i i think what initially made me ask the question was first off i knew you had opinions on it so i just wanted to set you up for that anyway but also (laughs) also it, it is funny because in my mind i remembered chinatown differently like i remembered it as being a very heavy um you know, really using some of the signifiers that we think of, like, I I thought there was voiceover narration in it still in there. Um, I I thought it was a much darker, like, tonally darker film. Um, Not tonally, uh, literally darker film. Like, I I recalled this being a film of a lot of shadows and dark. No, it's a very light film. And so that threw me off because I'm like, this is not a film with a ton of, like, scenes taking place on crowded or murky seedy streets or anything like this is a film where most of the scenes take place in the day it's the desert um yeah but yeah it's that there's a drought yeah that's a sun and and everything ever like everything is white in this everyone is wearing white every every wall is just bone white like you get so thirsty watching this movie i and, and I knew to look for yes. that this time because that's in the book. They make a point of saying that in the book, that that was actually something Evans did not like uh, when he first started seeing it. Um, what was that, you know, very harsh look that it has. Um, but yeah, it, it is very much a character just kind of being drawn into the ugliness that, that's kind of making up this whole town. And that's, that's there. And I noticed too, uh, J.J. Giddies starts off wearing a lot of white and by the end of the film he's wearing a lot of black and darker yeah. colors and God I, I mean this is this is really one of those movies where I, I love this where I'm watching it and I'm not thinking about how smart it is I'm not thinking about what it's doing no. it's just telling a really good story and then you get to the end and you're like oh everything like the, the thing that clicked for me the thing that clicked for me and Again, spoilers. This isn't a huge spoiler, but it's there. The the and the film opens with Burt Young, 
right? And he's yes, he's the uh, he he's the jilted husband who wants proof that his wife's sleeping on him, sleeping with him. And God no, sleep <laughs> sleeping around on him. Um, yes, and, and he gets that proof, and you initially start the movie thinking, oh, this guy, this poor guy, he's a victim. He's you know he he he's just he's been wronged and. Then at the end of the movie, you go back to his house and you see his wife with the black eye. And it just plays into that theme that nothing is as it seemed. The good guys and the bad guys are not who you think they are. And it like as the credits were rolling, I'm sitting there waiting for Netflix to tell me, you know, do you want to start an episode of Stranger Things or something? Um, you know, it, I, it like clicked. I'm like, this, this movie is no one is who they say. And that's played into everything in this movie. And that that was the moment it clicked for me that I'm just like, that is just damn smart. Yeah. Even baked into the classic, you know, the, the, the well, well trod area of uh, Evelyn Mulray's flawed eye. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. it's down to everything. <laughs> the, the film, like we said, Robert Town lived in this script for so long. It was just long and, convoluted forever and ever and he just kept being forced to pare it down and pare it down uh by robert town and then by roman polanski and to its to a point of you know as as razor sharp as it can get without feeling that it's razor sharp (laughs) meaning it doesn't you know this film doesn't i know this is a weird thing to say it doesn't cut like you expect it to it's a very smooth film Mm -hmm. it's very it doesn't you know, when, when the information comes, it's with one classic exception, it's not a huge revelation. It's just this info that comes out. Yeah. <laughs> and he knows what to do next based on that. It's a perfectly written detective procedural yeah. <laughs> in every possible way. Yeah, no, it, it's, and it's, it's a convoluted story. Like, like you said, I can't explain it start to finish to someone no. and say, this no. is what happened. But I never feel like the movie is hard to follow, right? You you follow right. you follow JJ Giddis from start to finish, and you know what's going. You know as much as he knows as he's figuring it out, and, and you know it as he knows it. Yeah, you know you know you don't get ahead or behind him. You are with him and feel his interpretation of what's going on all of the time. Right, right, and it does. It never feels in the moment confusing. It does feel looking back, oh, that's a really complicated story he stumbled on, but you don't it, it doesn't lose you like there there are there are mysteries I've seen where it's so much wheel spinning and red herrings and you know thinking it's smarter than the audience or deliberately like throwing smoke screens at the audience just to keep the plot going, and this just right. unfolds so organically. The- the famous example of the 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 murder of the chauffeur in the big sleep in Raymond Chandler's novel, which is never explained there's a murder that's never even resolved or solved in the middle of that book <laughs> for no reason other than we just never got around to it it's fine just plow through and it's a great novel i am not knocking the big sleep i want to be real clear about this <laughs> but yes this has this does not have any of that everything in this movie uh ties up really really uh, you know i would say too neatly but it's not <laughs> no, it's it would it might be too neatly if Town's original ending as written had been kept if Polanski hadn't gotten a hold of it and made the ending what it actually is today. 
Yeah, and that's the only ending that I think works for me. Like, that's not a movie that's heading towards a happy ending from the start. I don't feel it's heading that way. Interestingly, though, I, it is, it is, it's an interesting debate. I, I don't know that it would, you can, you can argue that, you can say that, and that's probably true of Polanski's film, but Town's script logically actually does end there. I mean, okay, so let's, let's straight up now. Here's mm-hmm. your here's your spoiler alert. If you have never seen Chinatown, pause us, go watch Chinatown and come back. If you watch Chinatown. Yes, the original town ending was Noah Cross is killed. Uh, and then a downpour happens in Los Angeles, which would fit in with the classic. There was always a almost, I think, I think Schrader calls it an almost Freudian uh, uh, connection with water in much of film noir, uh, which would be totally fitting that uh, the bad guy would be killed and this giant deluge would hit Los Angeles, which would be the end of, you know, the end of the drought that has been the, <laughs> that has been over everything you've seen and felt in this whole movie. Uh, famously, Polanski, you know, said, no, blondes die in Hollywood, which is hard to refute. Roman Polanski, who would know something about that. Uh, and so, yes, forced Robert Town to basically rethink the last scene of the movie uh, to what it is today, which is one of the most just horrifying and gut-wrenching <laughs> and depressing endings. <laughs> and one that fit perfectly in 1975. It, four, it, four, 74. It feels like it fits perfectly now sometimes. Um, yes, know, but, yes, it does. But it, it is that story of, of someone, and I guess the reason it fits for me, the reason why I feel like, oh, that's the way the movie ends, is it is just him it's that constant encountering of the the powerful getaway and in history that's what happened Uh, you know in history that's what happened in la right the yes and so this is so tied into the history of la that's why town wrote it too was this you know to bring back the los angeles he grew up in um and it, it feels more thematically true that this has to end with the wrong people dead, the wrong people getting away with it. Um, if it, 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 it's a gut punch, like it still kicks you. That is, you know, that for me hurts almost as much, almost as much as the uh, end to seven, which is kind of the same thing. The world is more corrupt than you can understand. And, you know, that that's I, I I don't know how to wrap that thought up. So we'll just edit there. But uh, no, no, that's good. No, no, don't don't. I, I, I can see where you're getting at. They are, they are different for me. I, I, I never, I never thought about that, but uh, you're, you, you are onto something very interesting. I see where you make that connection and they're, I, I've never drawn it before. So I'm thinking about it and that's exciting. And I, I for me, the Chinatown ending, uh, the Chinatown ending is, is actually more depressing to me. <laughs> I think it's a, it's, it is, it is true. It's the, you know, it's the last line. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Mm-hmm. You'll it's... never understand. You'll never understand. And for seven, the thing is, by the end of seven, you understand exactly. It's, <laughs> yeah, there is still at least a, the, the, the moral center of seven still exists and acknowledges what has happened. Um, 
And there's a level of acceptance in seven that is arguably more depressing. It's less depressing to me, but, but I can easily say how you would argue it is a more depressing ending. Well, than, now that than China, she's left with, well, I mean, you remember the last shot of Chinatown is that camera swooping up and Jake Giddy's just getting lost in the crowd. He's just another person. And it doesn't have, it does not have the biblical weight that seven so very much brings upon itself. Mm-hmm. Now that I think about it, <laughs> but though. that's a fascinating connection though i really i'm intrigued i want to i want to dig deeper into this well now that i think about it though seven doesn't end with that scene in the in the desert right it ends with morgan freeman you know the world is a beautiful place right you know i believe that last part or you know it's him saying okay well you can fight back against this the the moral of Chinatown, the lesson JJ Giddis learns is it is really up there with Homer Simpson's you tried your hardest and failed miserably. The lesson is never try. Um, because he he does have this past where he was stationed in Chinatown and told right. don't get involved, don't ask questions, just do as little as possible. Well, this is him learning, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get involved, I'm going to do the right thing. And it backfires on him. It, it, it doesn't. He's got to learn out. it twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that. That is that. That's interesting. I had not been thinking of the way Seven actually ends and how that might actually be a little more hopeful too. But it really yes. is. It, it's like him becoming a cynic twice over. Yes, and there is something. And and again, it depends on your point of view. There is something. Mm-hmm upbeat about that I mean, there there is the argument that okay but you know we you get the feeling because polanski certainly doesn't believe people change or learn or get better mm-hmm. that you know he's gonna do this again you know he's yes he's learned he's he's experienced it again but he hasn't learned it he will make the same mistake again because that is his nature and you know i think that uh is i can't even remember the name of of uh uh, 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 the character in seven, and I can't believe I can't. Somerset, right? Yeah, Somerset, you're right. He, uh, you know, Somerset is already sort of deeply cynical and accepts this. He's more knowing than Giddy's is. That's the that's the real difference. Is that if you if you believe that it's all, if you're doing the best you can possibly do, you understand that's not going to be enough. That's a, that's a that's a really great litmus test of a question. Does that make you a pessimist or an optimist? Yeah. Um, let's talk about Jack Nicholson for a minute. Yeah, let's. Because he is, he's up there. Him and Gene Hackman are are two of the actors who, when I see them in old performances, I just realize how much I miss them on the screen, and how we never really got a great like retirement role from them um i can't remember what was jack nicholson's last role i would disagree but uh did he do anything after about schmidt oh yeah he did an adam sandler movie did Uh, that come after that i believe so anger management um oh my god is it the bucket list i think it might be the bucket list I'm, I'm looking as we, I, I am searching. I am searching as we talk about this. I pulled the bucket list without knowing for sure. Uh, the last Nicholson credit on IMDb as an actor is, oh, how do you know? 
Okay. Yes. Which makes sense that he would, he would, yes, he would do Brooks. He would do Brooks one last, one last turn. And he's fine in that. You know, I, Hackman for me did, I mean, the last performance is no good, but uh, you know, if, (laughs) if Royal Tannenbaum isn't a fantastic career capper, I don't know what is. Hackman at least got to go out on an utter high point being, the best thing uh, in a very good movie and <laughs> famously not getting along at all with the director and not doing anything the director wanted him to do <laughs> and still being absolutely perfect in the part. And Nicholson, of course, was supposed to do what he was supposed to do the, the American uh, make of Tony Erdman. Yes. Yes. And that has fallen apart. He won't be doing that by all accounts. He's not, he's not in the greatest 100% health, healthy. yeah yeah um but it, it is funny because i watched probably about a year ago i watched um the last detail and it, oh. that, that's when i thought of it as oh. well like oh my gosh i just miss seeing him on the screen he's um, so good in that what's he's so good in that what, what's and, and that was before this that was a few years before this or maybe uh, the year before, before i believe 73 yeah. another okay. robert town script and when was was one flew over the cuckoo's nest the year 75 after. okay okay yes um it, it's just funny i i i'm a little younger than you um so having grown up and seen him all my life is jack you know and then to go back to right. these roles and it's it, it, you just miss that performance he would give and he's so I, again this is another thing that i had remembered differently in my head um i remembered it being a really big kind of hard-boiled performance and that is not the performance in this movie he is he's he very rarely raises his voice he's he's not you know he, he he's very much jack nicholson at, yeah, as he would become in some ways like the the point where he's telling the dirty joke so excited to tell I that dirty joke which is, is so good but he's so uh, often so quiet and kind of kind of wounded in many ways too like he's just i'm attached to my nose i enjoy breathing through <laughs> yes. it yes yeah it, it, he's just so good in this um and it's just such a natural performance yeah. without i i that's i i realized like the obvious no but, no, no and i yeah yeah i did not mean that in that way i'm, I'm truthful yes it's, it should be noted i don't i don't i don't think it's a waste of time to say that that yes i I, I am of the firm belief that this should have won Best Picture in 1974. I think it's a much better film than The Godfather Part Two, which is to say how good I think The Godfather Part Two is. I don't, yeah, but I think this is better. I think this is more on point and more, more of its time in 1974 than Godfather Part Two was. Uh, what else was 1974? Uh, conversation, right? Uh, 73. Nope, nope, same year. Nope, the, yep, that is 74. It Conversation's was, a really good film, too. Wouldn't have minded if that one either. Um, and then the other two nominees were Lenny and The Towering Inferno. <laughs> uh, even in the richest period of film history that existed in this country, The Towering Inferno can still get a Best Picture nod. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh, but no, it, it's just such a great performance. It was written for him, so I, I'm sure Robert Town, like he just he seemed to know what would fit him well and what would challenge him a little bit more too. Like what would be the movie Absolutely. star performance for him? And it it is a movie star performance. It, it's he's in every single scene of this, and he's fantastic in every single scene of this. 
Yeah, he has to be. He's got to carry the mm-hmm. entire thing and lets everybody else have their moments. I mean, John Houston is also spectacular in this, mm-hmm. just on the razor's edge of hemming it up. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a just as John just as John Houston did in real life. Whenever having the opportunity, he's going big. He's he is not shying away from this, and nor should he. They have crafted the film so that he can do that. I you know it's it, it was a brilliant piece of casting to have him play this. It is it, you know even if you don't know the interpersonal history of John Houston and Jack Nicholson who of course was dating Angelica Houston at the time, you know, those scenes crackle with that energy, even if you don't know that history, mm-hmm. <laughs> just as the casting uh, of, of uh, 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 the casting in Godfather two <laughs> accomplishes the exact same thing. You, if you, you, you use the history of the people between themselves interpersonally to make these scenes snap and crackle in really interesting ways. Uh, and this film does. I love all of the scenes with Noah Cross in this movie. Oh, I love so, all of the scenes in this movie. It, I could it, say that about anything, Chris. It is. It's just a really great movie. Um, yes. <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, no, what I like about John Houston in this is he is, he's, he's walking up to that edge, like you said, of Hammy. But I think what's key is he's not, he doesn't play it as sinister. It's folksy in many ways. And, and it's kind of a folksy evil. Like, you can tell that like, he's not a good guy, but he's also charming. Uh, he, he's really fun to watch. And Mr. Gittis. Yes. Yeah. No, no, it's Mr. Gitz. He never pronounces it right. Mr. Gitz. Even after he's corrected, I, I love that little power play he does. Like, he, he, you know, he's corrected by Jack Nicholson and then he still pronounces it Gitz because he can. Because he's rich and powerful. Well, yeah, and authority that knows it's not going to lose is mm-hmm. more frightening. And that's what that is. That's what that character is. That character never gets upset. That character yeah. never gets mad. He knows he's going to get what he wants. Yep. And that's horrible. That's so much scarier. <laughs> um, I also think, didn't the book reveal that Angelica Houston was there the day when they were filming the scene where he's like, are you sleeping with my daughter? I believe that's, I, I don't remember that exact detail, but it would not surprise me because oh, I know sure as hell Polanski would make sure she was. <laughs> yeah. He knows that's going to make that song, that, that scene sing. Um, and then Faye Dunaway as well. Just fantastic. Like it, it's, again, I watched it. Like I remembered enough about it where I knew, you know, you know, the big iconic moments, you know, the nose, you yes. know, the, she's my sister, she's my daughter. Yes. Um, and knowing that when you watch Faye Dunaway's performance, it's just, it, it's so fascinating to watch just the little ticks she brings into that performance whenever her father's mentioned, um, or she's talking about her husband, just the little stumbles in her voice or the way she closes up a little bit. Um, it, it's really just, I, I mean, when you're talking about one of the, greater movies ever made you're going to keep coming back to it's just a great performance and it it is and i have i have many an issue with fade down away <laughs> we'll get into this deeper next uh, next time when we're talking about network but um she's it's it is a it's an almost thankless part as written because she is not a at, at no point is she presented as the classic sort of Barbara Stanwyck femme fatale. Like she's not, you, you don't 
at least I never have. And I don't know if that's just familiarity with the film from a really young age and an inability to pick up on these things when I was so young when I first saw it. But, um, you know, I've ne- she never seems manipulative to me throughout the movie, even watching it now, trying to pick up on, on this. Uh, there's stuff she's not sharing, but it never feels like, it never feels like Jake is in trouble for her gain. You know what I mean? Mm. Like he's not, she's not using him for her own gain at, at any point in, in this story. And that is rare for this kind of story. <laughs> That's usually not how this goes. And she is such a story function. She doesn't, as she does not exist on her own terms as a character. And I think that makes it really a really difficult character to play. So all the more mm-hmm. credit to Faye Dunaway for finding all of the right notes to play in those scenes. And especially in the big scene, which is truthfully, I love the passages in the book about the filming of the sister daughter scene. Cause it is, it is on paper, seemingly an actor's worst nightmare. I don't know how you play that, which is exactly what Dunaway didn't know how to do yeah. <laughs> because it's nothing. It, it, there's nothing. I don't know where you go to make this, to make this grounded in any sort of reality <laughs> that you can play. Uh, and she, she, you know, everybody finds a way to do it. You know, whatever help she gets from everybody. And it's one of those things like we were talking about where it works because every single aspect of the film is leading you to it. It is, it is in the cinematography. It is in the production design. You know, shout out to Richard Silbert, the iconic production designer who's who worked with uh regularly with in paramount in this period but yes for polanski and also uh, throughout mike nichols career he's he shows up uh, in the 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 fantastic mike nichols biography that from this year as well as a character uh just the costumes just everything works to help sell that moment that is such a movie moment and is the one truthfully you know music crescendo dramatic moment Mm -hmm. in the movie not that there's a music crescendo it does have that much subtlety but but it is the (gasps) moment in the movie and to let it yes and to let it pass and to let it not be the climax of the movie Mm -hmm. is really impressive it's it's great the way you get this big moment and there's still a good 20 minutes of movie yeah no i think I, I was thinking about like, okay, if this was a movie that was, oh God, someone's going to hear this and they're going to take the idea. But, you know, if they, God forbid, remade it as a Paramount Plus TV series, <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be a twist. You know, that would be twi- that would be your climactic twist that sends everyone reeling out. It's a revelation here, not a twist. You know, it, it's not, it's not just, it's not the crying game, the end of the crying game, like, you know, jaws dropping things. It, it's there, but it informs the whole rest of the movie. And thematically, yeah. there this whole idea that oh, there, there's, there's a worse evil than what he is initially, you know, yeah, he, he's looking into. It, it's there. It informs it. It's not cheap, and it affects what happens in the next thirty minutes of the movie. Yes, absolutely. It is the beginning of Act Three. It's not the huge reveal at the end. Um. Going back to, you, you mentioned musical cue. Jerry Goldsmith's score is just so damn good in this too. Um, <laughs> yes, I, and, to, and to know how much Polanski didn't want it is fantastic. <laughs> well, have you heard? Have you heard the original score? I'm sure you have. Oh, yes. 
Yeah, and it's yeah. oh wow, it's it's not subtle. It's not not wallpaper. Um, who was it? Was it Evans who said to get this this score? Who replaced it? Yes, okay. it was the most uh, aside from hiring Polanski himself <laughs> to to wrangle town. It was the second biggest thing that Robert Evans did as the producer of this movie, which of course famously and again we should probably talk a little about robert evans here for those that don't know robert evans was the head of paramount from about 1967 to about 1974 75 uh the the big goodbye goes into a great amount of the political detail of how he stayed in that position and who his biggest enemies were in that position uh and he was so popular and successful that this was his first solo venture so there was his enemies within Paramount hated the fact that he was using Paramount's muscle to get this movie made and was going to profit personally from it, as well as being the head of the studio from it and attempted to use that to both destroy him, the movie and get him out of Paramount. Uh, and Evans was, if you've, uh, if you've never seen the kid stays in the picture, the excellent documentary made from Robert Evans, the autobiography of the same name, or if you've never listened to the audiobook of the kid stays in the picture, which is Robert Evans reading his own autobiography, which you should really do if you never have. Uh, he was a fantastically entertaining figure in the history of movies. And he, uh, you know, he famously in this period could not keep the respect of any director he worked with because he would keep taking credit for the final product. <laughs> but yes, if he could take any credit for Chinatown, it's for hiring Roman Polanski and for getting that incredibly uh, discordant off-putting score that Polanski wanted wiped from it and getting Jerry Goldsmith to write him a old-fashioned Hollywood score in 48 hours. Well, what's what's funny, too, is when you read the book, when you read The Big Goodbye, uh, and, and even when you read um, The Kid Stays in the Picture – you get this sense that this was a constant battle of back and forths, right? Like I think Evans didn't like the cinematography that, uh, that, that was showing up. He didn't like those harsh colors that I like very much in this. Uh, um, He wisely didn't like the score. And, you know, there are some films that are very much the director's baby. They feel, you know, you, you talk about a Woody Allen film. It's, Woody Allen, you know, there are thousands of people working with him on that, but it's, Mm -hmm. you talk about Woody Allen. That's one of the reasons why I have never brought up, let's talk about Woody Allen, because then you got to talk about Woody Allen. And I don't know that I'm comfortable doing that yet. (laughs) Polanski's one of those guys who I'm not sure I'm comfortable always talking about Polanski, even though he arguably made great movies. Didn't inarguably made great movies. He made inarguably. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, but when you talk about Chinatown, this is very much, I mean, this is Robert town with that script, but Polanski had the idea for the ending. Robert Evans hires Polanski. He also insists on that score. Uh, you don't have anything. If Robert town didn't want to write this for Jack Nicholson, it is, you know, we talk a lot about movies are this collaborative medium. This yep. is what happens when you bring these great collaborator collaborators and they really collaborate. Like sometimes or they, or, least, or they fight each other on it, but everyone yeah, gets or they them. reach or in town's case, or they reach the point where they realize they have to cede control because they've been paid too much. Mm-hmm. That's just what happened with town on this script. And there's, it's appropriate that the only Oscar at one was screenplay for Robert town. Cause it's it. 
I mean, if it doesn't, if it's Roman Polanski's film, and it is, it doesn't exist without Robert Town. <laughs> Robert Town is the god of this world. <laughs> Let's mm-hmm. get that very straight. He created it. <laughs> Polanski shot it and made it a movie. But this movie does not exist without Robert Town, who I will give first and foremost credit uh, for its existence. And one of the most horrifying things about The Big Goodbye for me is I didn't know I didn't know town story through the eighties and nineties and what just a, what, what an asshole he was. I mm-hmm. did not know that, which was, uh, that was, that was sad uh, for me because I, I, not that, uh, not that I did as, as a young man, when I was discovering this period of film, Robert town was a mythical figure, <laughs> you know, this, this great script doctor who, who, touched all of these amazing films throughout this period and then made a couple of really interesting films as a director. Uh, that was, that was, uh, that was a bummer to learn what an asshole he is. Yeah. Became. Well, what was kind of a bummer reading the book is how there, there's this great moment where there, are, you know, Jack Nicholson, Robert town, Roman Polanski, all collaborating on this. Yeah. And then that fizzles right at like Roman Polanski arrested shortly after this Jack Nicholson, yeah. like, Hey, he wants, you know, he was, he was this big guy who left, you know, piles of money on his table for a while for his artist friends. And then he's, he's Jack after this, um, Robert town asshole mission impossible too. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's not his fault. The mission impossible two is terrible. Uh, he's okay. He's the only screenwriter on that. But anyways, yeah, it's, it's, he didn't write the doves. That he did not write the we know who to blame for Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> let's be real clear. That's John Woo's poop. Okay, let's be real clear. That's the number two. <laughs> it belongs to John Woo, all right? Uh, but it is this movie where, you know, it's this kind of lightning strikes moment where, hey, this is what we can do. And then almost at success, you know, kind of makes this kind of thing a little bit harder, a little more impossible. Um, yeah. it, it, it's really, I mean, that that's that's where the book kind of left me is, oh, this movie was great. And because it was great, everyone's life went on a different trajectory. Hollywood started going in a different trajectory. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a downer of an ending in the book, but it's, it makes for a great book. Yeah, it, and, and it's all tied into, as I was talking about earlier, the political machinations within Paramount at the time, to, mm-hmm. you know, to... If you, again, these are, uh, it's, it's no fun to talk about the executives ever, but the story of the feud between Evans and Frank Yoblins is, you know, uh, is, if you don't know it, the, that book is a perfect place to learn about it. And if you do know about it, you can see how that becomes, you know, there, there was that brief gasp from 67 to 70, we'll even call it 77 until Star Wars, where studios were bought by multinational corporations who didn't know for sure what to do and so they let these people make movies and then they figured out how to make so much money out of them (laughs) and so made that happen and turned it into the factory and made state of the art a phrase that people thought was good (laughs) And, and led to uh, and and led to with with the returns of Star Wars and uh, Jaws and then Star Wars the the eighties, and uh, and then we can get into we can get into the indie movement that follows in that way. We can talk about the crash of that in the nineties, but let's not get into that right now. 
that's this great era of of film and that's why i love the title of the book i love the title of watson's book is the big goodbye it is such a great throwback to chandler and to talking about this period of hollywood history that was so brief yeah it's so brief <laughs> it's so short and it's well, so the, good. and the year after this is jaws and yeah you know i it, and there's a reason why we're doing a summer of seventies and we're not talking about star Wars and we're not, to- I love jaws. I jaws is in Ann oh, Arbor tomorrow right. night. Jaws is actually, as we're recording, it's playing in Ann Arbor tomorrow night. And I asked my wife if my son was too young to see it. And he is, but uh, I, I was really thinking about it. Can it be oh. more horrifying than space jam too? I, I don't think I don't so. Know. I don't think so. But it, it's funny too, because I, I did read, um, I, I read Robert Evans' book a few months ago. I read <laughs> The Big Goodbye right after that. And then just about a month ago, I read David Koff's book on the making of Network. So I feel mm-hmm. like this whole era, I, it's just been kind of a crash course in. And it is fascinating because it's it doesn't feel like the current day where there's, you know, everything has to be existing IP. Everything has to be easily sold and franchisable or, you know, owned by Warner Brothers so that you can run LeBron James through all of it. It's, it, mm-hmm. it really is this time where they wanted to make art. They wanted to make a statement, but they would also, that movie, Chinatown was one of the top grossing movies of the year, I believe. Absolutely. That would not happen today. Like, I don't know that was. I, I don't want to say when say talk. that, but I don't know that that's true. I mean, I, I gotta be. I mean, every year there are. Yes, it is the kind of movie that is hard to get made mm-hmm. because there's. But but movies that are hard to get made still get made. You know. <laughs> so I don't. I, I mean, yes, they were. It was much easier to get them made in 1974 than in 2012, 2021, but. Uh, you know, I, 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 yes, it was better then. Yes, in the sense that it was easier then. Yes, absolutely. It's just different now. Yeah. You know, it's it's a different time. And it will be interesting to see coming out of, you know, all, all of that is a response culturally to the Nixon era. I am curious to see what happens coming out of the Trump era. <laughs> it could be another you know, really dirty, depressing era for American popular culture, but some really great art's going to come out of that. And, and Way the, better than what came out in the eighties. And just so like, I am, I am, I am, I'm hopeful. I am hopeful. Well, the thing you're guaranteed is following that more star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to yeah. have that forever. Uh, one last thing on this movie. I have not seen the sequel, the two Jakes. Have you, I'm assuming you have seen that. I saw it so long ago. I, mm-hmm. I think I saw it. I think I saw it when it first came out on video. I did not see it in the theater because I had there. I knew the reviews were terrible and I didn't really need to have Chinatown uh, besmirched in any capacity. Um, and I remember almost nothing about it. Uh, I remember it better from the really excellent description of the making of it. That's in the big goodbye. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that's that it covers that so well that like that's all you need to know about it. You need to know why it happened and why it fell apart more than actually seeing it. You're not going to learn a whole lot seeing it. It is a disappointment. Uh and the less said about it the better. But what needs to be said about it is said in the big goodbye. Yeah, uh, Evans writes about it a lot too from a probably a different perspective. Um <laughs> he he's definitely more of a victim in in his telling of it. 
Um, yeah, I, I, it is interesting to hear they were they wanted to do three of these. And I had heard rumors. I don't know how true this is, but I had heard rumors that the third was going to be called um, Cloverleaf and deal with the transportation industry. Yes. And it was always that, meant to be that yeah, water got, power and cars. Yep. And the ideas for that, once they decided, hey, we're not moving forward with that, got pulled into Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I don't know if the timing lines up for that to be true. Um, <laughs> but it is funny because when I first saw Chinatown, I, I had seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit multiple times. I, I love that movie. Um, and I, I remember when, when you know, it was revealed that tied into water. I'm like, oh, this is just like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And <laughs> You're not, you know, not not thinking in my head. Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out about twenty, you know, fifteen years later, and was definitely uh, riffing off this. But that's mm-hmm. that's a story from ten years ago. Um, it's another great, yeah. It, it, and th- again, in its own way, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, absolutely a noir, totally sure. <laughs> uh, though, okay, one more thing on this, that, and you brought it up at the very start, so it is good to close on this too. Um, you can, you know, I, I, a lot of times people will, you know, go ahead and they'll make a noir and it very heavily feels like, oh, they're playing homage to this. They're, they're riffing on this. They have the voiceover narration and they have this and it's, it's trying very hard to tell you, you know, hey, we're doing this thing again. And I think that, I don't know if it's age with Chinatown, that it's just aged so well that it feels like one of the great noirs. Or if it just always was so felt so organically like that, that it, it never feels like an homage or a throwback. It just feels like an organic, good detective story. Yeah, I think it I think it was so classic. It probably felt that way at the time. Like I said, it, 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 it feels old and yet is was so contemporary for 1974 and I think it still feels that way. I, it doesn't play. It, it, it plays like a classic because it mm-hmm. is not because it's evoking classics and it avoids so many of the, you know, so many noir tropes. Like I recently rewatched Double Indemnity, uh, which I hadn't seen for a few years, which is, uh, you know, quintessential, arguably, you know, the, the ultimate sort of explanation of what noir looked like coming out of Hollywood, coming out of a Hollywood studio in the 40s. And, you know, in that, you know, Barbara Stanwyck's doing everything that Faye Dunaway's doing in this movie. If you know what's going on, you can watch her throughout the entire thing and understand exactly what's, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that it's the same character by any means. I'm, 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 uh, this, I'm, not, I'm not saying that Faye Dunaway is copying her in any capacity. It's the Just archetype. saying that that is a film that has, and it's a film in which there's no surprises. That's the thing about noir. You, you know, in the great noirs, it is pointless. <laughs> noirs are not happy <laughs> noirs are not happy at all they are the past catching up with you they are your inability to get away with it whatever it happens to be uh and the condition that you live with all the time that anxiety and that guilt that you live with constantly that's what noir is and that's kind of what we're talking about here is that the the interesting thing about chinatown is it doesn't have that until the very end you think you think Gettys is is on top of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> getting away with it, and there is no sign that he isn't until the very end, which yep. is when it shuts down. And what makes you go, oh oh yeah, this is not just a detective film because there are detective films that aren't noirs. Mm-hmm. This is a noir yes. <laughs> through and through. And with that, 
I think that brings us to the end of Chinatown. It's Chinatown, Chris. I was going to try yeah, and Chris. roll into that. It's but, Chinatown. Uh, I knew that was going to come. I knew that was going to come. Uh, <laughs> Remember it, Chris. Chinatown. It's one of the all-time greats. Perry, would you like to tell the good people what we're going to be talking about next week? Or in two I weeks. I'm so next excited. Episode. In two weeks, we're going to do a Sydney Lumet double feature. I highly recommend you check these out if you haven't seen them. We're going to talk about both Network, another Faye Dunaway film, and Dog Day Afternoon for my money, one of the 10 great films of the decade. I'm excited to talk about Dog Day Afternoon because, uh, man, if you've never seen it, you do do yourself a big old favor and watch Dog Day Afternoon as soon as you can for one of the all-time great Al Pacino performances, the best performance of John Cazale's career, uh, and a film that, uh, as we've been talking about, still feels for as much of a media satire, not even satire, for as much about the media in 1975, three, I think three for Dark Day Afternoon. Uh, it's for, for not having the internet, it still feels pretty modern mm. <laughs> and pretty on point. The same movie could be made today. It would just be different kinds of cameras. I am looking forward to that. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon is a blind spot for me. Uh, Network is I'm not. I'm so excited for you to see it. Network is so not a blind spot for me. Um, I, I really, I, I'm glad to talk about Network when it is no longer, um, you know, relevant. But, <laughs> which is obviously a joke. But <laughs> Of course. And I want to, it'll be, it'll be great to get to pay homage to Ned Beatty. I, Rest I'm in peace, Ned Beatty. One of the all-time great monologues ever delivered in movie history. In the meantime, Perry, where can people find you? You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at Perry Loves Film. You can hear me on the Lucy and Lance show every Friday on WLBY in Ann Arbor. And you can sometimes hear me on... I know the name of the show. Cathode Ray Mission. It's... The Cathode Ray Mission podcast. You can sometimes hear me on the Cathode Ray Mission podcast. I know we have a Tarantino episode coming up in the fall. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and where can we find you, Chris? You can find me. Um, the best place is my newsletter, Criticisms. Uh, I am still writing about the films of the summer of 1996, which I regret horribly. Uh, <laughs> taking that out. <laughs> uh, I, I was doing great until I got to the Nutty Professor. Um, and... and uh, but I, but that's not all it is. Occasionally, I'll just write about anything that kind of strikes my fancy. I just did a uh, piece on the Marvel movies. Um, and on Sundays, I am doing a Sundays with Spielberg series. Um, some of it are just republishing what I was doing a year ago until I catch up. We are almost caught up, which means I'm almost going to finally get to watch Empire of the Sun, uh, which I'm very much looking oh. forward to. Um, you can also read um, my thoughts about Christian culture at Pathios. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and occasionally I do a podcast called the Jesus Junkyard Podcast, um, where we talk about Christian pop culture. Um, but the newsletter is the best place to find me. Uh, it comes out every week. You can find it on Substack. There is a link in the show notes. And we will be back in two weeks. <laughs>